<laughs> That'll be good for my part, but uh, <laughs> you like that? Yeah, good job. <laughs> Where's the disco ball? <laughs> uh, thanks for coming out. Uh, welcome. Uh, before we get rolling, uh, I would like to thank the Dean's Office of Arts and Humanities, the Sims Family Trust for their generous support of the new writing series. Uh, please turn off your cell phones. Uh, this reading is being recorded by Mandeville Special Collections Library, which is represented by that little box over there. Uh, the recordings are available via podcast there. I'm here today to introduce Paul Harding to you, though many of you may have heard of him before. He's the author of Tinkers, his first novel, which also happened to win the 2010 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. Tinkers has been rated 8,246 times on Goodreads. It averages three and a half stars. It has been reviewed 242 times on Amazon.com. It averages three and a half stars. Same rating as Jersey Shore Season 1, the DVD collection. Here's a couple of reviews from Amazon.com of Tinkers. Uh, Mamillan starts uh, their review. The part that's bolded says, eh. <laughs> if you like beautiful, poetic prose about cold mornings, sun rays, and tree shadows, then get this book. If you want to read a book with a storyline and engaging characters, then don't waste your time. Uh, Boston Chef begins there with painful and pointless. Don't waste your money on this book. The plot is slow, poorly connected. The book is slow and the story does not thread together. I cannot believe this won awards. As one other reader commented, the only benefit is that it is short. Tinkers. <laughs> Paul asked me to quote some of these. Uh, <laughs> Tinkers is the book at the center of the un unquestionably the greatest modern-day American literary underdog story. The fable goes something like this. Man writes incredible, sophisticated novel, sends it to publishers, collects piles of rejection slips, waits, repeats, sends again, rejection, years pass, manuscript wilts in desk, Finally, through a chain of events, an interested publisher from a tiny press, Bellevue Literary Press, that specializes in publishing books at the intersection of arts and the sciences with a specialization in medicine, offers to publish the book. Booksellers across the country get an advanced taste of the book in galley form. They like the taste very much. Nine months later, the Pulitzer, climax, denouement. But this is a fable. Emerson chief of Harding's beloved Transcendentals, is winding down in nature when he arrives at this. We make fables to hide the baldness of the fact and conform it, as we say, to the higher law of the mind. But when the fact is seen under the light of an idea, the gaudy fable fades and shrivels. We behold the real higher law. To the wise, therefore, a fact is true poetry and the most beautiful of fables. These wonders are brought to our own door, learn that none of these things is superficial, but that each phenomenon has its roots in the faculties and affections of the mind. Whilst the abstract question occupies your intellect, nature brings it in the concrete to be solved by your hands. The hands, that's the end of the quote, it's kind of long. The hands, the mind. Tinkers allows the fortunate reader to solve her own way through the material of generations of factual, fictional lives, the Crosby families and our own, 
Written in a spiraling form as elliptical as consciousness itself, Tinker's is a marvel of the material imagination. Open to any page at all in this book and you will encounter imminence itself, a world made present in its particulars, the tiniest spring inside the largest clock, tea-colored tobacco juice, George's post-chemotherapy legs swelled up like two dead seals on the beach and then turned as hard as lumber. It is in this attention to the material of the lived world and the patient conversation of this material into language, conversion of this material into language that make this novel so remarkable. Even the condition at the center of the book, Howard's epilepsy, is presented as phenomenon, experience, an object. We are spared the usual reaching out for metaphor, the romanticizing flail that would treat illness as something other than what it is. This grace, this ability and discipline to allow things to be things, to harness the stuff that time is made of, and to make it present is Harding's gift to us. Please welcome my friend, uh, Paul Harding. Thank you, Carnegie. Thank you, Ben. I wasn't sure where that was going <laughs> at first. Um, my favorite one-star review on Amazon of Tinker's is starts Tinker with boredom much. <laughs> so <laughs> it's true. You know, I read my. You know, I look at the reviews and get mad at them. Um, so I figured uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, particular pleasure. It's uh, we had a, Ben and I had a really fun time. Um, sort of doing a sort of passing off monologues today in, 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 with one of his classes. It was, you know, good. Um, and we, we were talking about imminence and the idea of embodiment. Um, so I figured, um, I figured what I'll do is I'll read for maybe 20, 25 minutes, and I'd be delighted to have a and I like to talk with people. Um, and so I'm going to kind of do a little buffet thing. I'm going to read a little bit from Tinker's uh, passage that I was thinking of while we were talking in class today. Then I'm going to read a, a couple of pages from the new novel I've been working on, and then just a little third self-contained two-page two page piece. Um, so Tinker's is, um, I, I think this, this is just a set piece about a character who um, loses his father um, <laughs> to mental illness, um, and the narrator's name is Howard, um, and it switches person here and there or whatever, but I think this is just, this is just him um, uh, recalling his losing his father, I think should explain itself. It seemed to me as if my father simply faded away. He became more and more difficult to see. One day, I thought he was sitting in his chair at his desk writing. To all appearances, he scribbled at a sheet of paper. When I asked him where the bag for apple picking was, he disappeared. I could not tell whether he had been there in the first place or if I had asked my question to some lingering after image. He leaked out of the world gradually, though. At first, he seemed merely vague or peripheral, but then he could no longer furnish the proper frame for his clothes. He would ask me a question from behind the box on which I sat, shelling peas or peeling potatoes for my mother, and when I answered and received no reply back, I would turn around to find his hat or belt or a single shoe sitting in the doorframe as if placed there by a mischievous child. The end came when we could no longer even see him, but felt him in brief disturbances of shadows or light, or as, the slight, or as a slight pressure, as if the space one occupied suddenly had had something more packed into it. Or we'd catch some faint scent out of season, such as the snow melting into the wool of his winter coat, but on a blistering August noon, as if the last few times I felt him as another being rather than as a recollection, he had thought to check up on this world at the wrong moment and accidentally stepped from whatever wintry place he was straight into the dog days. And it seems that doing so only confirmed to him his fate to fade away, his being in the wrong place, so that during these startled visits, although I could not see him, I could feel his surprise, his bafflement, the dismay felt in a dream when you suddenly meet the brother you forgot you had or remember the infant you left on the hillside miles away hours ago because somehow you were distracted and somehow you came to believe in a different life and your shock at these recollections, these sudden reunions, comes as much from your sorrow at what you have neglected as it does from dismay at how thoroughly and quickly you came to believe in something else. And that other world that you first dreamed is always better, if not real, because in it you have not jilted your lover, forsaken your child, turned your back on your brother. The world fell away from my father the way he fell away from us. We became his dream. 
Another time, I found him fumbling for an apple in the barrel we kept in the basement. I could just make him out in the gloom. Each time he tried to grab a piece of fruit, it eluded, it eluded him, or I might say he eluded it, as his grasp was no stronger than a draft of air threading through a crack in a window. He succeeded once, after appearing to concentrate for a moment, in upsetting an apple from its place at the top of the pile, but it merely tumbled down along the backs of the other apples and came to rest against the mouth of the barrel. It seemed to me that even if I could pick up an apple, pick an apple up with my failing hands, how could I bite it with my dissipating teeth, digest it with my ethereal gut? I realized that this thought was not my own, but rather my father's, that even his ideas were leaking out of his former self. Hands, teeth, gut, thoughts even, were all simply more or less convenient to human circumstance. And as my father was receding from human circumstance, so too were all of these particulars. Back to some unknowable froth where they might be reassigned to be stars or belt buckles, lunar dust or railroad spikes. Perhaps they already were all of these things, and my father's fading was because he realized this. My goodness, I'm made from planets and wood, diamonds and orange peels, now and then, here and there. The iron in my blood was once the blade of a Roman plow. Peel back my scalp and you will see my cranium covered in the scrimshaw carved by an ancient sailor who never suspected that he was whittling at my skull. No, my blood is a Roman plow. My bones are being etched by men with names that mean sea wrestler and ocean rider, and the pictures they are making are pictures of northern stars at different seasons. And the man keeping my blood straight as it splits the soil is named Lucian, and he will plant wheat. And I cannot concentrate on this apple. And the only thing common to all of this is that I feel sorrow so deep that it must be love. And they are upset because while they are carving and plowing, they are troubled by visions of trying to pick apples from barrels. I looked away and ran back upstairs, skipping the ones that creaked so I would not embarrass my father, who had not quite yet turned back from clay into light. So he loses his father. I decided... <laughs> this is a spoiler alert. Sorry, things don't get better. Things don't get better. I decided to... So this is afterwards. I decided to try to find my father in the woods. When I walked through the woods, I wore my father's old boots... They were too large, so I had to put on three pairs of socks to make them snug. I carried my lunch in his old wicker creel slung over my shoulder. I wore his wide-brimmed hat. When I walked through the Gasper's corn patch, I imagined breaking an ear from its stalk, peeling its husk, and finding my father's teeth lining the cob. They were clean and white, but worn like his. Strands of my father's hair encased the teeth instead of corn silk. As I hiked through the woods, I imagined peeling the bark from a birch tree, the outer layers supple like skim. I would peel until I came to the wood. I would insert the tip of my knife into the wood and force the blade deeper until it touched something hard. I would cut a seam in the wood, prying it open an inch at a time, and feel a long bone encased in the middle of the trunk. I imagined pulling flat rocks up from creek beds. I imagined climbing trees and tasting for traces of my father in their sap. This is how I thought of myself, as looking for what he had always called in his sermons the deep and secret yes, an idea I never knew whether it was his own or something he had read in his books. I roamed the different places that we had gone together, but soon found myself hiking toward the outlet of Tag Pond. So Howard eventually comes to the outlet at Tag Pond. The day is unusually warm. He stoops to examine how the water has arranged silt and leaves around the stones and the pools beyond the first reaches of the outlet. The silt and water combine in an element that is half earth and half liquid. The appearance is that of a solid stream bed. Howard takes off his father's boots and the three pairs of socks he is wearing and rolls up the legs of his pants. When he steps into the water, the mud yields, a phantom floor that gives way to the true ground with little more resistance than the water flowing over it. Howard's legs stir the silt into clouds, so he stands still for a time, watching a pair of cedar wax wings catch insects over the water and return to the same branch on a juniper bush growing on a hump of grass in the middle of the pool. 
The clouds of silt unfurl and the current carries them away. Then the water in which he stands is clear again and his legs look as if they end at the knees. The sunken halves of his legs stand buried in the silt among hidden branches and stones, which because they are invisible somehow feel like bones. At a time, after a time, small brook trout return to where he stands near the high grass and bushes of the bank. Clusters of frog eggs float past him, some close enough to see the embryos inside. Howard traces the riverbed with his feet and finds a large stone, a lar- finds a flat stone broad enough to sit on. He finds another stone to place in his lap so that the water will not lift him. He sinks down into the silt and sits on the flat stone. The silt is so deep where the stone is that only his head rises above the water and only his neck rises above the silt. He watches the silt billow away from his neck as if his severed head has been tossed on the water and rather than blood bleeds clouds of soil. It is now the middle of the afternoon and Howard decides to sit this way through the entire night until the sun rises the next morning. By the time the shadows begin to lengthen and creep across the water, the stream has healed itself back around him, and he imagines that he will now be able to see the animals and the light and the water the way they are when he is not present, and that that might tell him something about his father. I will have to sit still like a guru, he thinks. I will have to ignore cramps and the cold. I will have to breathe very slowly and very quietly so that my breath does not even stir the water flowing past my chin. I have to ignore whatever slithers past me in the mud. I cannot fall asleep. I am bound to see frightening things. What if I see lights in the sky? What if I see shadows sprinting through the tops of the trees? What if I see wolves walk on two feet and crouch like men to drink from the stream? What if there is a storm? What if it is clear and the sky brimming so full of stars that the light overflows down onto the earth and transforms into luminescent white flowers along the bank which sparkle and disperse without a trace the moment the planet passes the deepest meridian of night and begins turning back toward the sun? What if I see my father just inside the trees humming softly to himself content and at peace until he notices me sitting in the mud? So there's some boring tinkers for you. (laughs) So this is um, the next um, novel that's going to be coming out next year. It's called Enon, which is just the name of actually the village that um, George Crosby from Tinkers lives in in Massachusetts. Um, It concerns the same world, the same family, but it's not a sequel. Um, And the book is... um, about one of his grandsons who is in Tinkers very briefly. His name is Charlie Crosby. And um, the premise of the book is that Charlie loses his only daughter, um, a a girl named Kate, when she's 13 years old. Um, And it makes Tinkers look like an episode of The Three Stooges. So, you know. Um, And so this is, I think this is self-explanatory. This is just um, Charlie thinking about um, his daughter and and the village and all this sort of stuff. So Um, I think the only thing you have to know is you you all know who Sarah Good was, right? She was um, hanged as a witch in Salem. Um, So... The ground of Enon is full of the bones of animals and citizens, sheep and dogs, fathers and brothers, oxen and horses, mothers and aunts, pigs and chickens, sons and daughters, anonymous cats and owls, Puritans and Indians, and unnamed infants are all in the ground, getting their bones mixed up in the currents of soil and groundwater, migrating beneath the foundations of our houses and the fairways of the golf courses, trading ribs and teeth and shins and knuckles, hey, that sounds like tinkers, commuting under baseball diamonds in the beds of streams, snagging up on roots and rocks, shells of granite and seams of clay, There are certainly more citizens of Enon beneath its 5,400 acres than there are above it. Just beneath our feet on the other side of the surface of the earth, there is another subterranean Enon, which conceals its secret business by conducting it too slowly for its purposes to be observed by the living. Imagine all the dead of Enon. Imagine all the dead who lived on this land, who roamed and returned, who remained and who fled only to be fetched back by their well-meaning kith. Imagine those who rejoiced, those who despaired, and those who never gave a thought to their portion on this mild acre. Imagine the woman who'd have been called a maiden, slapping her knee and wiping tears from her eyes, laughing forehead to forehead with the man who'd have been called a painted savage, 
crying, defilement wasn't even the word. And he hooting with glee and gasping back, genocide doesn't cover the half of it. Imagine Sarah Good and her prosecutors dancing hand in hand in a circle. She sings, I hope you drank your blood, good sirs, she famously said to her prosecutors, God will give you blood to drink. And they refrain in four-part harmony, we hope your collar's just right, dear miss. And imagine the hosts of the dead, these Caucasians, these Algonquins, these Puritans and renegades, the deserving poor and the undeserving rich, these couple dozen kidnapped Africans, this wretched solitary son of Cathay, and this other primordial rank and file of souls for whom we on this side of the partition have no names to printed books because they were ancient rumors to men ancient to us. Imagine all these souls easefully mingling with one another and watch this dead Congress, this unicameral Senate of sleepers waiting out the days, the one day, the one long day, regaling one another with feats of murder and rape, with accounts of flayings and immolations that would make even the sturdiest of the living fainty and pale. Surely theirs were accounts of grace and kindness, too, of mercies and mildnesses. But perhaps in their much-changed state, such benevolences are no longer so rare, are the rule, in fact, and so the yarns preferred in the graveyard are those that recall with relief and mirth the wicked misadventures of the burning human heart. These dead all were children of the same first violence, all troubled siblings sired by a detonation, and they have now found their ease in the great democracy of death. Not long after her death, I began to imagine that Kate was a citizen of that village of ghosts. It was not hard for me to picture Kate living in an enon that existed in the past, where all the citizens from the village's history lived among one another. I could see her, newly arrived, walking down Main Street between the cemetery and town hall, the Memorial Day parade route, I guessed. I saw her as having come from the beach a mile away, not from the sunbathing she'd done with Carrie right before she died, but from a landing, a disembarkation after a trip across another Atlantic. Kate has dried in the breeze, but her skin is salted and her hair and clothes brined. She is pale and still wobbly on her feet, from the weeks of the rise and fall of the trip across the oceans and still feels nauseous from the seasickness she suffered most of the way. The details of the shore and the dark boat that brought her are imprecise beyond the boundaries of this other Enon. I knew that the boat turned back after its crew saw Kate safely ashore and that by the time she entered the village it had sailed beneath the horizon to fetch more pilgrims. Main Street is unpaved and called the Turnpike. A dog, a terrier, trots out onto the road from the high corn that grows in a field belonging to the farm opposite the cemetery. It approaches Kate and barks and grins. Kate crouches down and says, Hi, boy, to the dog, and scratches it behind the ear. The dog is small, a descendant of the first terriers the villagers must have kept in order to help control rats. Kate takes a corner of hard yellow cornbread from her rolled-up beach towel and offers it to the dog. The bread must be old and stale and soaked in salt, the last of Kate's rations from, cr from the crossing. The dog sniffs at the bread, looks up at Kate, yawns, shakes itself and trots off toward a low brown house with a high roof and small windows fitted with diamond-shaped panes of leaded glass. The house stands alone behind a stone wall running along the road. Kate walks toward the house. The front door of the house is closed and when Kate gets to it and knocks, no one answers. She walks around to the back of the house. There's a dirt yard, a small garden in which some kitchen herbs grow. Kate does not recognize any of the herbs. They are dotted with black and midnight purple flowers and have prickly, hairy leaves the, colors, the color of bat's wings. There's a pile of wood stacked against the back wall. Kate turns away from the house and looks up the hill, which appears as if it is used for pasturage. It is late afternoon and shadows are long. A quartet of goats are making their way across the summit of the hill, slowly and in sig single file, and their thin shadows stretch in oblique angles ahead of them in parallel lines down the length of the hill, as if they are puppets being marched along the crest of a stage at the ends of long black sticks. 
Halfway up the hill, there is a girl, perhaps two or three years older than Kate, sitting on a stump with her elbows on her knees, one hand curled into a fist on which she rests her chin, the other extended and opened palm up in which a small yellow bird is perched, eating thistle. She wears a black dress that Kate finds archaic and beautiful and black leather shoes with wooden heels. Kate knows the girl from all the town history I've told her over the years, stories which bored her in themselves, but which she loved to hear because she loved that I loved them and I loved telling them to her. Despite the girl's infamous role in local history, Kate was loyal to her from the first time I told her the girl's story and always remained so, convinced that theories about her hysteria and madness were the kind of humbuggery that always suppresses the spirits of strong young girls. Kate knows that the girl has seen her, or at least is aware that she is there, even though the girl has not moved. Kate knows, too, that the girl does not move or gesture toward her because she already knows that Kate will approach her. Kate walks across the yard and into the pasture and up the hill and stands in front of the girl, who looks up, squinting in the light of the late, low, orange sun. There is a cooling, gusty breeze that makes the flowers and the long, stiff grass shiver. The pasture smells like grass and open earth and faintly dung. Kate says to the girl, you are Sarah. The girl raises the little yellow bird in her hand to her lips and whispers a syllable to it. The bird nods and flies away behind the hill toward the setting sun. The girl says to Kate, and you are Kate. Kate suddenly understands that she and young Sarah Good are together in a suspended moment, a small eddy or niche set aside, but within all the compounded times of Enon, which are always confluent and permeate. Sarah stares at Kate in a manner that is patient and deeply familiar and which frightens Kate. Kate begins to cry, and Sarah reaches out and takes one of her hands in both of her own. Sarah strokes Kate's hand as Kate sobs, but her expression does not change, and even her hands stroke Kate's in a perfunctory way, as if she is comforting someone else. And it feels to Kate like Sarah is looking into someone else's eyes, not hers, and that terrifies her all the more. Kate startles and tries to draw her hand out of Sarah's grasp, but Sarah does not let go. Kate sobs to her, Sarah, let me go. Sarah says, it's all right, my dear friend. Everything is all right. But again, it feels to Kate as if Sarah Good is speaking to someone else just beyond her, maybe just behind her or just to the side. She cannot tell where, but just outside of her awareness. Then Kate catches a glimpse of to whom it is she feels like Sarah is talking. It is Kate. There is a comforting, rushing sensation, similar to what it feels like to regain consciousness after nearly drowning or having had the wind knocked out of oneself and passed out. Kate gasps, and there is a flooding of herself back into herself, and she looks back at Sarah, who smiles at her and now clearly is looking right at her, now clearly always was looking right at her all along, and who is once again Kate's dear, cherished old friend, Born, grown, beloved, accused, condemned, and hanged. And Kate is once again herself, also born, also grown, also beloved, struck down and killed three centuries on, tomorrow, just this moment, centuries ago, on the very road laid out below them. Kate kneels down in front of Sarah, who is still sitting on the tree stump and rests her head in her friend's lap. Sarah runs her fingers through, through Kate's hair and says to her, not much louder than a whisper, sometimes it's hard to remember. Kate feels a tug at the cuff of her jeans. She raises her head from Sarah's lap and meets the impassive stare of one of the goats, which has wandered down from the summit of the hill and begun chewing on the cuff of her pants. So there's that. <laughs> and now this is just a little self-contained story. I wrote this a little while ago, and this is just, this is, I, I think the setting is Nigeria. You know um, how the Nigerian Delta has all these problems with oil and all this sort of stuff. So this is called Speed of Light. We lived in the Delta. The fingers of the Delta reached into the ocean. Oil lay beneath the Delta, beneath the water, deep in the earth. A network of pipes crisscrossed the delta. The pipes were large enough for a man to walk upright inside them. People lived inside abandoned sections of pipe in remote areas. We called them pipers. Sometimes we took turns climbing up on one another's shoulders in order to put our ears to the pipes to hear the flowing oil, even though it didn't really seem to work. 
At night, lights on the pipes glowed over the water and the land. At night, people sabotaged the pipes and stole the oil. Then we went to the lakes of oil left by the thieves and scooped the oil up with cans and buckets and bedpans. We did this before the army arrived. Every time we collected the oil, someone somewhere somehow made a spark and the delta erupted in fire and was scorched bare and our mothers and brothers and cousins perished again and again. Someone somewhere has made a spark. We all knew it would happen. We all hoped we would be in the village when it happened. I was not in the village. I was here scooping oil, and now someone has made a spark, and I'm in the middle of a pillar of fire. This is what the fire is like. It is a swaddling of light. I am crouched on my heels, and the bedpan I use to collect the oil is in my two hands. It is angled downward. I'm in the middle of putting it into the oil, which is now not oil, but fire. The fire is swirling around my thighs and my arms. It is a crown around my head. It is a mantle over my shoulders. I cannot feel the fire. Perhaps I will never feel it. Perhaps it will consume me before my nerves send their signals of burning to my brain. One night, my friend Christopher and I went out to spend the little money we had on beer. He was just back from the university, living with his mother again. His sisters had taken jobs in Europe to help pay for his classes, but no one had heard from them since they had left, and no money had come either, so now he was back. He had wanted to study astronomy. When the bar closed, Christopher and I lurched arm in arm out into the street, laughing and singing angrily. The night sky was uncommonly clear and full of stars. Christopher said, Jonathan, my friend, consider the stars and the age of their light. In my drunkenness, I missed Christopher's tone and sang, The age of their light, the age of their light. No, he said, look. But first I looked at him. His face was turned toward the sky. His eyes moved across the stars as if he were reading a book or a musical score. He pointed. Jonathan, do you see those three stars, the ones that make a triangle right there? Yes, my friend, I see them, I think. I said. I didn't see the triangle, but I didn't think it was important for what Christopher wanted to tell me. Fine, he said. The light you are seeing now from the star at the top of the triangle was made the year you were born. The light from the star on the bottom left was made when the Portuguese first sailed into the delta. The light from the star on the bottom right was made a thousand years before any of us saw a European. Our own history is in the sky, preserved for us in light. When you wake up tomorrow with your head pounding and your stomach flopping like a fish suffocating in the bottom of a boat, the light from the fires of the sun that sizzles your bloodshot eyes will have been made eight minutes before you awoke to your hangover. For all you will know, the sun will have gone out and the light you curse seven minutes and 59 seconds from the past. I'm thinking of Christopher now, wrapped in my chrysalis of fire, taken up and held in this instant's Instant before my dispersal into ash, I wish I could ask him, Christopher, what is the light that I see now? What is preserved in the light of this, the briefest of stars? Thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you, Tommy. So I'll be happy to take questions and constructive criticism. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. What did I just spared? <laughs> <laughs> um, what I did before I became published? Oh, I, I um, I, I just wrote. You know, I mean, I sort of, it, you know, in the, uh, you know, everything turns out to have a happy ending here, at least so far. But the um, one of the kind of the silver lining of not being able to get published for a long time is that over the course of the four or five years during which I didn't get published, I reconciled myself to. Um, possibly living the life of a, of a writer who was not going to get published, um, which is very liberating in ways because then it just freed me up to write whatever I actually really felt. I never had any problems second-guessing readers or editors. Um, so, and, then, and then when you know, Tinkers was published and met with some success, it, um, you know, it just it became, a kind of, um, it became a kind of fiat just to kind of keep doing exactly what I was already habituated to doing. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your writing process? 
Yeah, I could talk a lot about my writing process, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, a big, that's the big one, isn't it? I don't know, you know, we were kind of touched on this in class a little bit, but, you know, one of the things about, you know, listening to writers talk about their process is you just have to make sure you don't give them the, ever give in to the temptation to receive it as normative, you know? And it's also, a, you know, a, a, a peril that, that, as a teacher, you have to make sure that you don't present it as normative. It's a real temptation. Because um, the real trick is that you just got to write any way you can, you know, you, any way that gets the words on the page is the right way for you to write. Um, so I write in a completely haphazard way. Um, I write, you know, non-linear. I don't, I just, I, I, from the very beginning of, say, writing Tinkers or this new novel, actually, it turns out, you know, I have a sense of the broad, I have a broad sense of the borders of the work, and I just sort of, uh, the metaphor that I use is I'm like one of those little um, robotic vacuum cleaners, you know, that, that, that just bounces around the room and they say it eventually sort of, it will eventually vacuum clean the entire room, and that's just kind of how I move around in my, and I just write, you know, whatever I'm interested in or whomever I'm interested in in the morning when I flip open the laptop is what I write about. Um, it, it's, it's hell, it's hell toward the end when you just p get a pile of 250 pages that don't, you know, don't seem to make any sense. But, but, um, that same distinction to, you know, one of my mentors, Marilyn Robinson, who has to write, you know, from the first sentence of the first chapter and write everything in order. And if she gets halfway through the book and it doesn't work, she throws the whole book out and starts again. <laughs> you know, and if I, you know, and I, if that's how I thought you'd have to write a book, I would have, I'd be a plumber. You know what I mean? Like it just, it just, you know, yeah, yeah. So it's just, you know, kind of whatever interests you and just, you know, yeah. yeah. You do share with Marilyn Robinson, though, um, an interest in a world that no, no longer exists, it seems to me. that you There's a, I want to say it's nostalgia for an earlier time and an earlier mode of living and temporality, except nostalgia implies that, you know, we miss it. And you could actually inhabit these present moments. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this period of time uh, some years ago, which you don't live in now, but presumably you're always invoking. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's easier to live in that time when you live in New, New England still. I mean, that really, you know, because I, I spend, you know, much of, the, you know, every day sort of walking through the same woods that Thoreau and Emerson did. So it's a very living tradition. I think the other thing about, you know, say, just to speak to, like, say, transcendentalist thinking, you know, and the aesthetics of, in philosophical tradition, I just think that, you know, um, uh, um, the questions that those people posed um, have not been solved. You know, there's those that we talked about this in class today, too, but, you know, they, 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 they pondered the mysteries which are not solvable, you know, and... Um, they, you know, the, uh, the, their philosophy in aesthetics is very experiential. You know, it's the experience of being a self, of having a mind, that sort of thing. So I don't find them archaic. You know, to me, the, the fact that they're archaic is kind of a more cultural or historical sort of thing. You know, on a bad day, it's just like to me, it just seems like it's the it's the yet another evil consequence of like you know the consumer model of intellect. You know, just sort of you know, oh yeah, you know, I mean. You know, just the idea now that, like, very, you know, I don't think many people actually read Emerson or Thoreau anymore. Present company accepted, of course. We're but, but, you know, just that idea that, like, they've just become, like, the, you know, the word is out on Emerson. So it's like you don't actually have to read him. You know, you just, you, you know, you just, you, we all know, you know. And what's, I mean, what's interesting is often what happens is for better or for worse, you actually go and you read these authors again. I mean, they wrote in order to have their ideas reactivated by, Interacting with a, a living mind, you know. But um, you go back and read a lot of these people, and they, you know, they actually say the opposite of what their reputation. Mm -hmm. We were talking about John Locke a little bit last night, and you know, John Locke—he's often invoked in the name of the Enlightenment, you know. And when we all discovered that, you know, the entire universe was available to reason, you know, and the first thing he says is, "Since so little of the universe is available to human reason, <laughs> let's see what the bounds of it are and be grateful for what God has given us." You know, it's very completely different from his, you know, from his. But um, again, I don't know. I guess it's 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 um, it's not dead if it's if you're engaging it and you're reactivating the ideas. I feel like that I'm, you know, Tinker's is, you know, it's 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 just explicitly in dialogue with those people and with Marilyn Robinson's work too. Other questions? Don't be shy. Oh yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Yeah, I don't know where to put those down um, line breaks. Okay. With a book like this, where it's, it really does seem like a seamless kind of tapestry, even 
the way you don't use quotation marks for dialogue. And, um, how did you decide where to have chapters end in the game? Four chapters? Yeah, and that came, there are four chapters, and that just came right at the very end. That like, happened during editing, pretty much. Because, um, I mean, when I put it, when I assembled the manuscript and put it in the order that it, it ended up in, um, there were just no breaks. And I just thought, take pity on the poor reader, you know, because, like, you know. Um, so it sort of divided up somewhat naturally into those four sections, and they, you know, they, they it's it sort of, it came to work. But I just don't, I don't think in that way. And again, since I, I, I have no, I mean, everything, Everything about my writing process is fortuitous. Wallace Stevens says that in one of his essays. You know, the, deliber- the deliberations of philosophers are... No, the, the investigations of philosophers are deliberate. The investigations of poets are fortuitous. So I'm just improvising and, you know, kind of feeling my way around. And so kind of whatever comes up, I'm always surprised by, and it just sort of gets thrown into the mix. And then, but then over with a lo- our larger, longer narrative the narrative starts to kind of almost arrange itself. It, it starts to dictate its own terms, its own logic, and you just become the sort of shepherd. You just sort of like let it kind of, you know, you just sort of tend to it and let it, let it do its thing. And I, do, I think of Tinker's as unlineated, you know, lyric prose or whatever, just the opposite of prose poetry is. Could you uh, speak... In your, uh, in the, in your past, you... Uh, Played drums mm-hmm. like professionally, and, mm-hmm. and, and I was. We had Eileen, the poet Eileen Miles here recently, and she sort of spoke about. Uh, she thought every poet was a percussionist in a, in a certain <laughs> sense, which I thought was an interesting uh, analogy. And so, could you speak a little bit about the relationship of, of what you learned as a drummer? And yeah, sure, sure. Really? I mean, th- I think in some ways, I mean, in p- poetry in particular, I mean, poetry is music. To me, you know, I think of poetry as music. I think of it as song, as lyric, that sort of thing. Um, and I think kind of all languages in some ways. So I, just, you know, I mean, for myself, kind of anecdotally, um, yeah, I played drums for many years. And when I think of writing, I mean, I have this very sort of idealistic idea. You know, I, I, uh, I don't take any credit or any blame for my writing. In some ways, I'm being very coy. But um, I think of myself as an amanuensis when I write. But when I play drums, I just think that I'm just taking dictation. I feel very passive. I feel very sort of like instrumental, as it were, in the strictest sense. You know, that if, just, if I'm sitting at a drum set with a pair of drumsticks or if I'm sitting at the, at the laptop keyboard, I just, just start to take dictation. It's just like, you know, it just comes over the wire. And there's something kind of, I mean, that's why it's art and not carpentry or whatever. You know, there's something beautiful about the fact that if it's working the right way and if you're articulating what comes over the wire, as precisely, with the kind of precision that you hope for, there's this beautiful way in which, even though the medium is absolutely essential to what's coming over, um, it becomes incidental, too. You know, like in the, in the way that, you know, when I'm deep into a Coltrane, you know, deep into Coltrane, there's a certain point where it's sort of like, you're, you, it's, it, it's just circumstantial that he's holding a saxophone. You know, it's like just like what's coming through the saxophone, and that's, and that's kind of one of the, that's quality control for like when I write, what I try to do is I try to, Make the language so precise that attentive and you know um, sympathetic readers will forget that they're even reading language. You know, you just want direct experience going straight in, you know, from one brain into another. Um, and going back to that kind of intuitive or sort of Im- improvised, you know, the idea of improvisation. Um, I mean, I often now I know what, like, say, the time signature of a paragraph or a sentence is before I know what it actually means in literal terms. So I know that there's so many beats to it, you know, and 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 you know, so I shave syllables off it before I even know what the nouns and the verbs are necessarily. And again, and that you just keep conjuring it into more and more precise and exact, exact kind of existence. We were talking about that a little bit earlier too. The idea that if you're a writer, you need to know language. You know, to the greatest extent possible for, in terms of precision. And if you're a musician, that's why you woodshed. You know, you practice your chops so that when the stuff comes over the wire, whatever comes over the wire, you can catch it. Um, and speaking of quotation marks, you know, like the second book that I wrote, I, I really, there's a point where I was just thinking, this can't be right. This book can't be right because the characters talk to each other through the whole, And I was like, I don't write books where characters talk. And, um, and, and they talk to each other so much that I started using quotation marks because I couldn't tell who the hell was talking. I mean, Tinker's, it sort of worked because in that book, so much of that book is interior. It's all actually kind of happening in the character's mind. And I had just the idea that like the quotation marks would rupture the seal on that interior world, but this next book doesn't need that, you know. And so it's that just that, that I, and so 
it's interesting because a lot of times when you learn writing, um, you know, you learn like today we're going to work on dialogue, and then you know you sort of you sort of abstract it, and it becomes theoretical. Like you think of yourself. I thought of myself as I'm a writer who does not write dialogue. So I was thinking in terms of theory before the actual work, you know. And then suddenly I had two characters that spoke very, you know, fluently and often to one another, and I was able to take down take down and transcribe what they were saying to each other. And so it wasn't a matter of me being good at dialogue. It was just a matter of me suddenly having characters who spoke to each other. So, you know, it's just very like you just have to kind of be ready for whatever kind of comes at you, you know. And, and um, it's that idea of you have to trust your subject. You have to trust your... You, it's not like, I'm a great writer, and aren't you lucky I'm going to bring my talents to bear upon your story. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, the, the, the subject... the. The subject means itself. The subject is its own best representation or witness. So then it's just your job to render it as precisely as possible. Yeah. Regarding tinkers, how did you know when and how you had to write this book? Yeah, oh, that's an interesting. Um, I, I guess, you know, it's the, the basic dramatic premises of the book are all based on stories that my maternal grandfather told me about his life growing up. Um, so as in the book, my grandfather um, repaired antique clocks and I apprenticed with him. And he, as in the book, his father had epilepsy and abandoned my grandfather's family my, when my grandfather was 12. And so, you know, they had the... And I was very, very close to my grandfather and have very, you know... Very intense memories of him telling me these stories up in Maine, fly fishing and all that sort of stuff. And uh, I guess in a way, you know, sort of one of the reasons I started writing about it was, you know, they were sort of family legends, so sort of the book of Genesis for the Crosby family. Um, but also it was just a way to sort of commune with my grandfather, just to think about him after he passed or after he died. Um, and we had a vigil, a, de- a deathbed vigil like the one that happens in the book. You know, it's interesting because uh, so, uh, sometimes people ask me, you know, what's true in the book? And I have to say, well, everything is true. But, but they're, you know, because I'm not interested in autobiography. But these things laid claim to my sort of my heart and my imagination. Um, but the thing that sort of dramatically made me think in terms of fiction was um, the, there's a moment in the book where um, Howard, the tinker of the title, the guy who abandoned, who leaves his family, um, is, is supposed to be going home from his rounds one night, and he suddenly becomes aware that he's gone qu- a quarter of a mile past his house, and that 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 that's the moment he allows himself to be conscious of the fact that he's that he's leaving his family and. That just seemed to me, I mean, as a writer of fiction, to me, you know, I, I'm interested dramatically in these these things that, uh, you know, these circumstances that people find themselves in which are impossible and yet they're true, you know. And so, you know, that idea that, you know, and so he has to establish this kind of double consciousness because um, he has to leave to preserve his own life, but leaving means that he has to do the worst thing he can imagine, which is abandon his family. So he has to kind of trick himself out, you know, that sort of thing. That's what motivated writing Enon, you know, the idea of the death of your only child, because I know people who have suffered losses. I mean, we all do, right, if we haven't ourselves. And and it's just that, you know, I, I, it's just, that's just something that I just cannot imagine being able to survive. And so it's just, I just, it seemed like an impossible thing, so that's, you know, Gotta put everything at stake when you write, so I just wanted to write about that. Did you have a question? Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have any favorite book authors? I have many favorite books and authors. You know, I mean, you know, the Tinkers. You know, Tinkers is all that kind of New England transcendentalism. It, you know, Melville, um, uh, Melville, Hawthorne, Whitman, Emily Dickinson, Thoreau, uh, Emerson. Um, Wallace Stevens, I really love Wallace Stevens. I consider him part of the transcendentalist movement. Just you know, um, <laughs> he might not. But um, when I first started to try to write fiction, I was um, under the spell of the then so-called they're probably still like, but the Latin American magical realists. I don't you know whatever the word. But um, I really love Carlos Fuentes. I actually remember the mo- uh, re- read, being in the middle of reading Carlos Carlos Fuentes' novel Terra Nostra. And just halfway through it, just thinking, I gotta get me some of that. Like, I gotta, I gotta get in on that, you know, because it was just, it was like the whole world was in a book. And you know, he and one of the things I liked about those guys, him and like Julio Cortazar and Gabriel Garcia Marquez, is one of those three writers in particular. They use each other's characters, 
Hmm. And the, you know the, the the protagonist of Julio Cortazar's Hopscotch shows up in 100 Years of Solitude and in Terra Nostra. And I, you know, like you know, like suddenly character from a, like what am I doing in, in another novel? And I just love this idea that like, and I don't even. But the spirit of it was that we're all writing chapters in the novel with a capital N. And I just love that kind of that kind of dialogue, kind of fellowship sort of thing. That it's this sort of everybody's just sort of making this big giant story, you know. Yeah. Other questions? Anything else? That's probably a good, a good, good question. One more. Yeah. One more. One more. <laughs> Please, only one more. Books for sale too. <laughs> and I'll sign them for you <laughs> with my crummy EKG <laughs> signature. Um, you're talking about kind of recording what comes in on the wire. It's mm-hmm. kind of a mystical idea. It's almost like it's super mystical. Yep. <laughs> Channeling. Do you feel as though Don't take that as normative. If you think it's <laughs> if you think it's an act of will, then if you know again, no, it really is. I mean, I can only describe my own experience. You know, and, and it is. I mean, these are all sets of metaphors that I use. You, you know, I mean, because to me, I don't. I mean, to me, it's just like where my will comes in is just. I feel very serious about. I'm trying to make art. I'm trying to make fine art. You know, and uh, I'm trying to make art that that's durable. I want it to stand up. I don't want it to be disposable. I want to haunt people and that sort of thing. So, I mean, there are all sorts of technical and specific ways that I, I discipline my writing in order to try to, like, do justice to the art I'm trying to create. But that's because I feel like I always just subordinate myself to art. You, you, you know, I've got to do art justice, so I better be ready when it starts, when it comes in. You may not think that. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, it really is this just very strange experience. experience I just experience it as selfless. It feels like it's out there. I mean, I have these, you know, these weird metaphors, and none of them work, and they get mixed in there. Sort of, but it's that sort of I just sort of like you know stumble from metaphor to metaphor. But you know, I think I'm very idealistic, so I feel as if, for example, right now there still is spinning and brilliant and bright out somewhere out in deep space, the perfect version of Tinker's. And I would just, you know, get into my little spacesuit and kind of float out and sort of, you know, and, and sort of come back and try to fetch it back and bring it down into, render it down onto the page into language. And every time I more or less fuck it up, you know, and then, and then, and, but then I kind of go back out there and like, and so my publishers, they like, don't go back out there. You know, like, you know, because if I could, I'd just spend the rest of my life rewriting Tinkers. I think that's actually something, you know, you hear about poets doing that a lot more, you know, like, I'm going to rewrite my collected poems. And, you know, like FSG said, oh, great, here we go again. But that's just the way I think of it. I just think that it's, it's, it's absolutely, it's perfect and it's eternal and timeless out there. And I just go out and try to fetch back, you know, and it's, they're more or less flawed versions of things. Um, you know, but again, just to, I mean, just you know, to, when I talk about that with like Marilyn Robinson, she says, no, there's an integrity to every moment. And your job is to get the integrity of the moment. And if you don't, you never have a chance at it again because it has passed. Beautiful. It's a very beautiful idea. But if I had to think that way, I'd be like, oh, shit. You know, like, oh, all I ever do, I can't, you know, can't ever, ever. You know, so I have to think of it as just like it's still there. It's still available in this kind of perfect. It's very platonic kind of in some ways, you know. I guess that's, that's yeah. good. Yeah. All right, well, thank you all. That was very kind of you.